This Sunday we are in Revelation 2, verse 12. We're continuing the discussion of the letters that are written to the churches in the first several chapters of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ to John. And these letters are, are written to churches in Asia Minor and we've um, already dealt with Ephesus, we've already dealt with Smyrna, and today we're sitting in Pergamum. That's a mouthful of a city name. But this is Revelation 2, 12 and following. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name and you did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and engage in sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You hear how the letter starts. These are the words, who, the words of one who carries the two-edged sword. What, what is that imagery about? Well, to understand, we have to look a little bit at the history of Pergamum. Pergamum is the first city in Roman-controlled Asia to, pro to proclaim support for the worship of the emperor. So Pergamum was granted a special authority. They had been given the authority to become the seat of judgment of Rome in the eastern half of the empire. So essentially, in Pergamum, sat the sword of judgment for Rome in a vast region of territory. The citizens of Pergamon built an arena where gladiatorial games were held in honor of the Roman emperor Diocletian. These games were violent and were a good reflection of the violence of the Roman culture and of the excesses of the Roman culture. The Romans celebrated violence and power. And this obviously clashed with the values of Christians living faithfully within the teachings of the kingdom of God there in Pergamum. So when Christ says in this revelation that he sees the way the church of Pergamum lives in the very place where Satan has his throne, it seems he's talking about the seat of Roman justice, which is not justice, and the celebration of violence instigated by the power of the sword. By mentioning Antipas, the faithful witness, Christ affirms that 
the pressure that the Pergamum Christians were living under was very real since he knows that one of their own number, one of the Christians living there had already been killed, we think, in the Colosseum there. Try to put yourself into this scenario if you're able, and I'm not even sure we can, but let's try. I mean, consider what it means to hold fast to the name of Christ when some of your first church friends or fellow church members uh, are being killed for affirming the name of Christ. Think of the threat of that. We were nervous about a little virus. Think of the threat of already losing one church member to the government that is in power where you live. Think about the temptation to skip a weekly worship service in those circumstances. I mean, today we hear the weather's too cold, the weather's too hot, it's too rainy, my uncle has a birthday party, can't make it to worship, you know. Then it was, uh, oh, like the people who came last week, one of them got killed for coming. That, that puts church attendance in a little bit of a new light, I think. If ever there was a reason to abdicate, if ever there was a reason to hide, the fact that murdering enforcers of the imperial religion were prowling the community, looking for candidates for the arena to please a bloodthirsty crowd that comes from your neighborhood, if ever there is a reason to cut corners or compromise, well, maybe that would be the time. But remember what Jesus reveals to John. Our Messiah, our Christ, is the one who holds the sword of justice. He is the judge, and the judge of the world to come. Don't ever forget that. His word is law, his word is truth, and it is to him that we owe ultimate allegiance. Now, in the letter, it says clearly, most of the folks of the church of Pergamum stand faithful, and they are commended for Christ, by Christ for that. But not all of them. That's the sad part of the letter, right? Some of the folks have fallen prey to those who suggest compromise. Balaam is the first example we're given. He's a symbol for a prophet who misleads the people of God. If you're not familiar with the story of Balaam, you can read it back in Numbers 22 to 24. You get the whole story in there. They were, um, the people of Israel were led astray by Balaam's bad advice and they participated in temple practices that were somewhat similar to what Roman temple practices were in the day. There were aspects of temple worship for the Romans that were very sketchy. Other people from this church may have been tempted to participate in the temple celebrations, which included venerating or worshiping idols and the emperor. These celebrations were known for inappropriate activities between men and women. I'm trying to avoid words that I wouldn't use in the face of my young children who are present today, but you who have ears to hear understand what I'm saying. To the Greeks and Romans, purity was not a virtue of any significant value. But to the early Christians, 
because of their Jewish roots and because of the teachings of the apostles, their bodies were understood as gifts from God meant to be cherished. And as Christians, we know that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what we do in the flesh matters. It's important. If you think about all that's involved here, when you think about the different compromises that are on the table, when you think about the fact that Jesus holds the sword of judgment, the sword of judgment, when you put all these things together, I think what's being involved here, what's being addressed here is, what is our basic identity? What's the basic identity of the people in the church of Pergamum? What is our basic identity today? To whom do we belong? What are our values? How is our identity rooted? In what is our identity rooted? Will our lives be shaped by the story of the cross of Jesus Christ and the mission of the kingdom of God? Or will our lives reflect the glory of Rome enforced at the end of a sword, enjoying whatever pleasure we seek, no matter what the cost to ourselves or others? It's gonna be one or the other. We're either people of the empire or we are people of the cross. Some folks in Pergamon, however, want to sit on the fence. Some want a foot in both worlds, which leads to a spirit of accommodation. I mean, a little bit of Rome can't be a bad thing, can it? In Smyrna, it was just a little pinch of incense on the altar of the emperor to get my certificate that I had done my civic duty and so then I could be prosperous and wealthy. In Pergamon, it may be just the question of taking an important client to a temple celebration. I mean, maybe it's just refusing to answer when someone asks our identity. Are you sure you know to which kingdom you belong? Maybe a simple comparison might help you. The empire carries the sword to enforce judgment. But all too often, they also use the sword to force compliance, to protect their national interest, and to intimidate anyone who is a threat to the empire. In the kingdom of God, however, we are told that we must act differently. This is Romans 12, continuing from where I began the service with the Bible reading. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who, we who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil 
with good. I mean, that's certainly a different way of living compared to the empire's mentality, isn't it? I think, I think even today, we wrestle with the realities of the different ways we are pulled because of the different sets of values that are all around us. Do we live to pursue pleasure? Well, we don't pursue discomfort, right? We're not told to pursue discomfort, but sometimes discomfort accompanies those who pick up crosses and follow Christ. And so will we live in the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain? Or will we enjoy the gifts of God and understanding there will also be times of suffering when we follow the will of God? Or do we live to exercise power? Are we attempting to uh, become masters of our own fate and, and have enough personal power to make sure we can do what we want to do for ourselves? Or do we recognize that as members of the body of Christ, we really do belong to one another, and so we care for one another, and that caring isn't just, oh, I feel bad for them, it's I feel bad for them because of what they're experiencing, and I will do something about it. I will put that compassion into action. What are the value systems? Is there some other value system besides the value system of Rome that is embraced by all the children of the true king? Do our lives reflect the identity of those who live within the kingdom of God? I wish this was easy to understand. Well, actually, I think it's easy to understand. I, what I'm trying to say, I wish it was as easy to live out as it was to say, because there's a, there's a balance here that's tricky. There's a line that connects the advice to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum. What is life like between a spirit of boundary keeping on one side and a spirit of accommodation and of consumerism on the other side. I mean, boundary keepers seem to lose their love for others and their passion of Christ if they don't tend to it carefully because they're so interested in enforcing standards. And yet consumers and accommodators seem to forget about the standards of the kingdom of God while they sometimes indulge desires for material things or, or they compromise their identity by worshiping at the altar of the empire, maybe just to fit in with the crowd a little bit, or maybe because secretly they don't really want to be too public in embracing the values of the kingdom because they know that comes with a cost and they don't really want to pay that cost. They don't want to really be harassed at work for standing up for Christ or by somehow identifying for Christ. And so, so we're sort of caught in the middle of this. We, we don't want to compromise, but we want to be flexible enough in order to love others well. We don't want to damage our witness to Christ, but we want to be relevant and of course comfortable and pain-free as much as possible. So, so, so there's a lot of lines pulling us in different directions. How do you? How do you keep the line straight and honor our commitments and protect our witness? How do you do all those things together? Because it's a lot to figure out. And really, I can only come to one conclusion after 
a good number of weeks of studying this, and that is you only do it well together as a community of faith. I don't know that any one of us is bright enough or smart enough or perceptive enough to see all the subtle influences that are around us. And so I need friends in the body of Christ to say, you know, maybe you should consider being careful here. This, this potentially could be a problem. Or better yet, hey, Whitney, this was a problem for me. It might be a problem for you too. And so you should, you should think about that. It's, it's our perspective as a group. It's our compassion together as a group. It's our expressed caring as a group that helps us find the times where it's appropriate to stand and it's appropriate to love. Well, I think it's always appropriate to love. But it's appropriate to maintain standards so that together we can be citizens of the kingdom of God with integrity. I think it's helpful that later in the book of Revelation, in the 18th and 19th chapter, we get sort of a diagnostic about this. We get a, a picture of the chaos that's happening in the world at this time and a method for discerning how linked in we are to the power structures of the world. And, and I'm gonna just read selected verses from these chapters to give you a flow of what Jesus is reveal, uh, revealing to John when he speaks about the empire. And in this reading, Babylon, you should know, is a code word for Rome. Okay, so keep that in your mind as we read through this. This is Romans 18. Babylon's going to collapse in this narrative. And the city of Babylon, though it stands for Rome in this writing, stands for any empire that self, sets itself up against the kingdom of God. And when Babylon is overthrown in this narrative, all those who identify with her value system weep and wail at the loss of the empire. Listen, this is Revelation 18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins and so that you do not share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. And the kings of the earth, who engaged in immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her. Alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. And all the shipmasters and seafarers, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood afar off and cried out as they saw the smoke of Babylon burning. Alas, the great city, they cry, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste." Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, with such violence, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down and will be found no more. 
After this, I heard what sounded like a great voice of many multitudes in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and all who fear him, great and small. Then I heard what seemed like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunder peals crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made him herself ready. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Did you catch the flow of it? Any empire that sets itself up against the kingdom of God is destined to fall. And God's message to them is get out of there because judgment will come. And those who are tied to the value system of the empire will weep and wail and gnash their teeth when the empire comes crumbling down. But those who are living firmly in the kingdom of God, they are the ones who will rejoice at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That great eternal day when time comes to the end and Jesus himself is our judge and will judge each of us according to the principles of the kingdom and by the blood that he shed for us so that we can have true life now, then, and forever. That's what's being revealed here. There are only really two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of every empire that ever stood, the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, the kingdom of the empires of this world. And I think John wants us to ask the question, where is your identity grounded? Has the spirit of accommodation so invaded the church that we no no longer understand what our lives should look like? Have we made accommodations to protect our comfortable lives? Is expressing love for others too hard for us whenever it costs us something? Have we adopted the methods of society when it comes to expressing our views? I mean, consider, the culture is so loud and obnoxious and violent. Do we adopt the same tactics in order to be heard? Do we embrace just enough of the culture to fit in comfortably with them? Do our methods match our message? Are we loving? Are we kind? Are we compassionate? Have we offered our bodies to Christ, which is our reasonable spiritual act of worship? Or have we been conformed to the image of the world? These are the questions that Christ reveals to John in his letter to Pergamum. The Nicolaitans telling us that what we do in the body doesn't matter. The folks who follow Balaam, who say we should just pursue pleasure and do what's convenient. 
what have we become? We're, we're not just one thing, right? We may be members of one body, but we still make individual choices. And we rely on the Holy Spirit to reveal to us any area of compromise that may exist or any trend that's taking us in the wrong direction or any activities that are sub-Christian or part of our pre-Christian lives. And that's what we trust the Holy Spirit to do every time we come here, right? We set aside this time on Sunday morning to open our hearts for correction so that we can hear the voice of Christ saying, hey, you know, bring this in a little bit over here or straighten out this line or, or what about your relationship with this individual or I can't predict what the Holy Spirit's correctives are for you. I have enough difficulty hearing it for me. But together, we can discern the voice of the Spirit. And it may take talking to one another and confessing what we're hearing and feeling and praying together about issues so that we can know the voice of the Christ because we don't want to be accommodators. We don't want to be materialistic consumers at the expense of our mission. We don't want to be so concerned about perfect doctrine that we're not loving to the people that Christ died to express love to. And the scriptures tell us now, Christ has trusted us with his message so that we have become ambassadors of the gospel as if we were making the appeal for Christ himself. That's who we've become. And we really want to do that well, don't we? We really want to see Christ's love expressed through us. Desire of the Holy Spirit. I'm always interested in that passage in the Gospels where judgment is being discussed and, and um, there's an individual whose works were made of straw. And you hear wording about judgment and the question is what's gonna to happen to a person who builds poorly on some other foundation? And you get the image that they will escape judgment through fire though all their works will be burned up, right? So they're gonna sneak past on the skin of their teeth because of the gracious compassion of Christ. We don't wanna be that. We don't want to be folks who spend a lifetime spinning our will, wheels, never doing anything for the kingdom, when all the riches of the Holy Spirit and of Christ are available to us, so that we can be useful and fruitful and purposeful, so that we can make a difference in the lives of others, so that we can pour encouragement and kindness and compassion into the lives of our fellow members of the body of Christ. We want to build something that will last for eternity among us, right? We don't want to escape through the fire sneaking into heaven by the skin of our teeth. We're, made, we're meant for better stuff than that. And by God's grace, we can be that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we open our hearts to your Holy Spirit and we say, search us and know us See if there's any offensive way in us. Guide us. It may be, Lord, that we need the encouragement of your spirit today. 
it may be that we need the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit today. You know, Lord. But we ask that you would help us. That we would not accommodate. But we would step into the richness that you have for us. That we can be your ambassadors. That we can effectively proclaim the gospel with both, of our, both our lives and with our lips. And that you will be glorified as we embrace your mission. Help us to that end, I pray. Amen. And now to the King Eternal and to Jesus Christ, our Judge, and to the Holy Spirit, our Comforter and our Advocate. To Him be glory in our lives, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.